I'll tell you, as a child of the 80s, I love that sermon bumper. Man, it takes me right back down to the little, you know, 4-3 ratio screen, playing my, uh, playing my Nintendo, uh, putting my duck hunt gun right up to the TV so I could get all the dunks like that. That, like, three, third grade Sean would have, would have loved that. In fact, um, we have a picture of third grade Sean up here. Yeah, that's right. Takes me right back to that moment when I was rocking the mullet and the graphic t-shirt. You know, they say that they describe mullets as uh, business in the front, party in the back, but I'm telling you, that thing's all party right there. Like, there's no business going on when I was in third grade. It was nothing but a party. Oh, man. Well, we are starting a new series this morning called Radical... You can take that picture down. Uh, We're starting a new... (laughs) I can see it out of the corner of my eye. Uh, Called Radical. And we're going to spend the next 12 weeks in just an incredible book in the Bible uh, called the book of Acts. And this is just, uh, it's gonna, we're gonna see not just how this movement of the early church and how these first followers of Jesus just kind of figured out how to take all that they had learned and seen and experienced in him and apply it in their life and the formation of the church. It's not just about that, but it's, a, it's about how that book continues to be incredibly relevant in our lives and in our church today. And so we're gonna be uh, studying this book, not just here um, in the pulpit, but we wanna have many other ways for you to engage with because it's so rich. There's so much that, that we can get from it, um, so much more than what we have time to, to cover um, on Sunday mornings. And so we're gonna be doing some follow-up on social media. Uh, we've put together a, a great little prayer guide for you. It works as a journal to help you just kind of pray through the book, book of Acts uh, to, to understand more about what the scripture says, uh, some observations, you know, write down some of the observations that you get as you read it some points of application that maybe you feel like God is, is calling you to make in response to what you've read, and then, and then prayer, a prayer of surrender, uh, a, a prayer of saying, God, I, help me to live out what I have learned. And so uh, we printed off a bunch of these. Um, I think that they're going pretty fast. You can also find them online. If we run out this week, we'll have more next week. But it's just a great way to take uh, that, that next step in engaging um, in what I think is gonna be a great study through, through Acts. And, and we're gonna see as we go through this book, we're gonna, we're gonna watch as the mission of the church, as the ministry of the apostles and these first followers of Jesus begins to unfold. And we're gonna see how even today, we are an extension of what God started through the power of the Holy Spirit all, all those years ago. Now, the word radical, um, it has several different meanings. Um, 80s Sean that we saw just a little bit ago would use it to describe something that was good, something that was awesome. Dude, this pizza's radical, man. You know, like that's how it would have been used. Kind of think Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which I guess there's a third one out now that I need to put on my playlist. We got a fan over there, all right. So that's one way to, the, the, one description, one definition of the word radical. Um, another one is, you know, to think of someone uh, maybe who is a revolutionary, someone who is a reformer, someone that has an extreme or progressive stance. You might look at that person, you might look at that idea and say, that's a radical person, that's a radical idea. But the definition of the word radical that we're using for this series is, is this. It's relating to or affecting the fundamental nature of something, far-reaching or thorough. It is a radical overhaul of an existing framework. 
It's about the radical difference that that something makes. And really, that's what the book of Acts is all about. It's about the radical difference that Jesus makes in our lives. It's about the radical difference and impact that the Holy Spirit has on us. The radical power that we receive in him that changes everything. It's about the radical impact that these first followers of Jesus make in their communities and literally throughout the known world. The book of Acts describes the radical shift from Judaism to Jesus, from the temple to the church, from God being separated, from from only a a handful of people being able to go into his presence, God being separated and and out there to God being integrated into our lives through the Holy Spirit. It's, It's a radical shift from God's affection and blessing residing on the Jews to, to now being available to all people who put their faith in Jesus and follow him. And so over the next 12 weeks, we're going to look at how this, these, these, Christians, these early first believers made a radical difference in their world because Jesus made a radical difference in their lives and see how we are an extension of that even still today. And so we're gonna start this morning in Acts chapter one. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app that you like to use, invite you to turn there with me, Acts chapter one. If you are not familiar uh, with scripture, um, Acts is towards the end of it. We when you get into the New Testament, which is about two-thirds of the way through the scripture, you get into what are called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Let's tell the story of Jesus' life. The next one, right after that, is Acts, which is, kind of tells the story of the, the birth of the church and so much more that we're gonna see. Um, so Acts chapter one, just kind of hang on to it right there. And it's important whenever you um, start to study a, a new text uh, to understand what is going on historically uh, and culturally, the, the Bible study technique behind that is to, to the context before the content, to know who wrote it and who it is written to, what was going on in their world, what was going on in, in their lives. And, and in fact, you know, we can't actually understand the text in our world until we first understand it in their world. The, the first people who understood it, we need to understand it the way that, that they did. And so to get some context uh, to our passage, we actually just have to look at uh, the first few verses here of Acts chapter one. Uh, We see that the author of the book of Acts is a guy named Luke, and he's writing to his friend Theophilus. Now we don't know much about Theophilus, but we can assume that he was a man of some kind of prominence, that he was a well-educated man who had heard um, about this new faith that was forming around the person of Jesus. He'd, he had maybe even heard it. He had maybe even seen it for himself. And he saw the difference that, that it was making and the community that people were being drawn into. And his curiosity peaked. And in fact, that's maybe where you are right now today. Like you're here and you're not really sure what you believe about Jesus, but you're curious about him because you've seen the difference that he makes in the lives of others. And you're thinking, I wanna know more about that. If that's where you are today, then, then you understand that's where Theophilus was. He wanted to learn more about Jesus. He wanted to learn more about this Jesus movement that was happening. And so he reaches out to this guy named Luke. Luke was uh, a doctor by trade. He was an historian. And he was also a travel companion of Paul and some of the other apostles. And so Luke had a really good understanding of what this Jesus movement was all about. And so Theophilus reaches out to him and asks him to begin to do some more exploring, some more researching, to to dive in and to report back to him what he found, 
what he experienced and what he, what he saw. And so the first uh, report that we see back to Theophilus is what we know as the Gospel of Luke. In fact, if you open up Luke chapter one, right there in the first few verses, Luke references Theophilus. He says, hey, here is what I have found. I've gone out, I've asked questions, I've done the research. Here is what I found about the life of Jesus. And we get to the second volume, the book of Acts. It's a follow-up to his first letter that captures the birth of the church, the acts of the apostles, the the acts of these first followers of Jesus. And most importantly, it captures the acts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is the protagonist in the book of Acts. He is the hero of Acts. He is the central figure as he works and he moves and he builds the church and he gives this passion and this fire and he paves the way for the disciples to go and to minister and to serve and so Luke gives an account to Theophilus of, of these men and women that according, it's one of my favorite verses in all of Acts, um, Acts chapter 17, verse six, it describes, uh, someone is, is describing the Christians and this is what they say. They say, these people are turning the world upside down. They are turning the world upside down. And so Luke records this and he sends it back to Theophilus to describe what in the world is going on. How are they making a difference in a culture that is designed to squash any movement that is not sanctioned by the Roman Empire? And let me tell you, the Christian faith was not sanctioned by the Roman Empire. And the radical message of the apostles and these first followers of Jesus, it continues to be our radical message even today. We are sent out to proclaim that God's grace is available to all who believe. And he is sending you out to spread the word. That is the radical message in the book of Acts. God's grace is available to all who believe and he is sending even you, even me out to proclaim the hope of the world. And so we pick it up in Acts chapter one, verse four. Jesus has resurrected from the grave. He has spent the last 40 days with the disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. Don't don't miss that. That's an important phrase, the kingdom of God. He, He teaches them what it looks like and what it means and how his life, death, and resurrection ushered in this new kingdom. And we get to verse four. It says, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus tells them to wait. And, and, and I don't know about you, but if you're like me, I have a really hard time with waiting. <laughs> Just wait here, sit here. You, you have work to do in the kingdom of God, but you're not ready yet. And Jesus says, eventually the gift of the Holy Spirit that I've promised you, it's gonna come upon you. And we're gonna talk more about that next week. But in the meantime, they are told to wait and to pray. And like me and maybe like you, the disciples struggle with this. They just can't quite contain themselves. They have all of these visions of what is to come next. And, and they, are, they, they ask this, this very telling question, a question that reveals not just their misunderstanding of who Jesus is as the Messiah. I mean, even though they had followed him for the last three or four years of their lives, they have committed everything to him. They ask him this question, that that not only reveals that they still don't understand who Jesus is fully, but it's a question that also betrays their hearts and reveals their true desires for who they 
expect and who they want Jesus to be as the Messiah. Look at it with me in verse six. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, in the minds of the disciples, this is the time when Jesus is going to become the conquering king. He had just defeated death. There was now nothing that was going to stand in his way. And so they had these visions and this image of King Jesus rising up on his white steed with, a, a, with armor in one hand and a sword in another, and they are going to go and destroy all of Israel's enemies. And, and they were starting to get excited, thinking, yeah, we're going to be like the commanders of this army. We're going to be able to have a front row seat to see God finally restore the kingdom of Israel, to, to, to finally take us out from under the yoke of oppression from the Roman Empire. Life was hard. It was filled with heartache, brokenness, and pain. And the disciples thought that this would be the time that Jesus would restore all things to how God intended them to be. They imagined that this would be the time Jesus would end all their oppression, all their suffering, all their pain. That this would be the time that Israel would regain power and once again be in control. They would have the upper hand. Things would go their way from now on because the kingdom of Israel has been restored. But once again, we see that the disciples, like me, maybe like you, Missed the point. And Jesus shows once again that he has something different in mind. He says to them in verse seven, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. Jesus is essentially telling them, listen, the kingdom of Israel will be restored, but not in the way that you think it is going to be and not when you think that it should happen. He says, don't get distracted by things that are out of your control, things that only the Father knows about. And isn't that a pretty good word for us in our culture today? He says, instead, in verse eight, but you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, if you have your Bible open, look back up to verse six. And the disciples ask that question again. Is this the time that you are going to restore the kingdom of Israel? But in verse eight, Jesus turns the tables on them and he says, you will be my witnesses when you receive the power of the Holy Spirit. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And they think, all right, yep, sounds good. Let's go get them. In Judea, okay, that's a little bit away from my hometown, but I can make that trip. To Samaria, now hold on, <laughs> because now we're stretching into my uh, discomfort zone. I'm not really sure that I want them as part of your kingdom, as part of my kingdom, <laughs> God, and to the ends of the earth. Completely shattered their understanding what the kingdom of God was all about. 
What were they called to be witnesses to? Uh, well, think about it. If, if you were called to be a witness at a trial, they, they would put you on the witness stand and they would ask you all kinds of questions. And, and in that moment, they are not looking for your ideas. They are not looking for your opinions. They only want to know what you know. They want the facts. They want to know what you've seen and what you've heard and what you've experienced. And so the disciples are to be witnesses of what they had seen in Jesus, what they had heard from Jesus, and what they had experienced with Jesus. They were to share the good news of a risen king through their words and through their actions, which would result in the formation of diverse communities in which all people, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of nationality, all people are treated equally as they give their allegiance to Jesus and live by his teachings. And in doing so, they would continue to usher in the kingdom of God that they had learned about and seen in Jesus. What is this phrase, the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? I'm glad you asked. The kingdom of God comes to earth when King Jesus rules and reigns. Like maybe one of the simplest definitions of, that I've ever heard of the kingdom of God, it's when King Jesus gets his way. It's when things on earth are as God wanted them to be, as they are in heaven. The kingdom of God comes to earth when King Jesus rules and reigns, when what he did and taught is lived out in the lives of those who follow him. And so while the disciples are having visions of ruling over their oppressors and finally having their revenge, Jesus says, listen, the people that you are thinking about right now, the people that you want to go out and you are ready to go and conquer and control, I am sending you out to them to be my witnesses to them, to serve them and to let them know that by the grace of God, they are loved by him and invited into his kingdom too, just as you are. The radical message of Acts chapter one is that geographical and social and racial boundaries no longer matter. The cross of Christ has destroyed them for good. Jesus broadens the kingdom of God to be inclusive to all people who put their faith in him, all people who turn from their sin and follow him. This is a fundamental shift that the disciples didn't see coming. And as they're standing there, and I imagine their, their mouths just like wide open, trying to process what in the world they just heard and what that means for them now, all of a sudden they see Jesus rising up, ascending back into heaven over the cloak of a cloud. It's just like the Shekinah glory of God, his presence ushering Jesus back up to heaven. And they're looking up their mouth wide open going, what do we do now? Jesus didn't do at all what they expected him to do. It was kind of this mic drop moment for Jesus where he just drops and is like, Jesus out. And the disciples are going, what now? <laughs> where do we go? Where do we turn? And I imagine that, that the words of John chapter 20, verse 21, probably started to come flooding back into their mind. And they remember Jesus saying, as the father has sent me, so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. 
And you know, Jesus has this pesky habit of sending ordinary people like me and like you to tell people about the extraordinary grace of God. You may have heard it said, I mean, we are God's plan A. There is no plan B. It's you, it's me, it's the disciples, it's the church. We, we go out, we have been sent out to preach this message of reconciliation. That God is no longer counting people's sins against them, but they have been restored and redeemed by the blood of Christ. And it's not just for Israel, it's not just for us here, us online. It is for all people who put their faith in Jesus, turn from their sin and follow him. And I don't wanna be presumptuous, but I imagine that, that in a lot of ways, we struggle with some of the very same things that the disciples struggled with. The disciples were focused on the little K kingdom of Israel and Jesus expanded God's love and grace in ways that they had absolutely no category for. They wanted Jesus to restore Israel and to save them from their oppression. And Jesus is like, listen, I'm not gonna do that. You're still gonna live with this in the midst of this. In fact, it's probably going to get worse. But through it all, you are going to point people to the hope and the grace and the forgiveness that can only be found in me. I think that the same is true for us. There are times when we have this myopic focus on our own little K kingdom. All of us have things going on in our lives right now, big things, uh, things that matter to us. And I'm telling you, things that matter to God. Peter tells us, cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So these things that, that, that you're bringing in today, maybe the, the things that are just weighing down your heart and your mind that are exhausting you, that are keeping you up at night, God cares for you through those. But I have this tendency to focus so much on the cares and the concerns of my own little kingdom that I miss out on the big kingdom that God wants me to be a part of ushering in to this world. And I think many of us are asking the same questions that the disciples were asking. Lord, at this time, are you going to restore? We're asking, when will you heal my body? When will you restore my marriage? When will you pull me up out of my depression and calm my anxiety? When will you rescue me from my addiction? When will you restore my broken relationships? If you're anything like me, man, over these last uh, few years and certainly these last few months, you may find yourself just doing that breath prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, come. There's so much pain, there's so much heartache, there's so much going on in our world right now. We just pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Yesterday morning, I stood right here on this stage and delivered a funeral sermon that was woefully inadequate to the Mumper family and friends. Family in our community whose lives were just cut down far too soon by a senseless, tragic, unknown act of of violence. And, And in that moment, 
there were hundreds of people here. There were people down at the end of the hall, students, parents, teachers. There were over a thousand people that joined us online for this. And I think every one of us, maybe even you, are asking the, the same question. Why? Why did this happen? God, where were you? You, this understanding, and, and those of us who are followers of Jesus, we have this hope that one day God will restore all things, but there are things that happen in this world and there are things that happen in this life right now here today that we're just like, God, what are you waiting for? When are you gonna return and make all things right? And I think that Jesus is lovingly saying the same thing to us that he said to his disciples. It is not for you to know the time to, to trust. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you, you will be my witnesses through it all. You will be a witness to my perseverance in your suffering. You will be a witness to my reconciliation in the way that you forgive as I have forgiven you. You will be a witness to my sustaining joy in the midst of your heartache. You will be a witness to the new life that I rise up out of the ashes. You will be a witness to my life and my death and the resurrection that has the power to redeem and restore and renew all things. And I think that we fall into this trap of thinking that we need to have our little K kingdom restored before we can point people to the capital K kingdom of God. But I think that God comforts us in our weakness so that we can identify with the pain and the suffering of others in this world. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1 that as we have received comfort now, we go out and we extend the comfort of God to others who are living in this broken and painful world. We point them And we are a witness to the love and the grace that can only be found in Jesus that is available to all people through Jesus. Max Lucado says it so well in his book, God Will Carry You Through. He writes these words, there are no easy answers that can bring the comfort we desire and there is no magic wand that will make it all go away. Instead, we have something, and I love this, or someone far better. We have God himself. And this is the radical message that we proclaim. And as his followers, Jesus' last command should be our first concern. Whether we are in our own backyard or halfway around the world, we are no longer focused on our little K kingdom of self, but the big K kingdom of God. And we will be his witnesses. We will be a witness to the living God who sent his son Jesus to die the death that we deserve so that in him we can find the life that was his. So that we can be adopted into his family and so that then we can be sent out to take part in his ministry of reconciliation. That God is redeeming and reconciling and bringing the world back to himself. To tell the good news of the grace of God that is available to them too. That's available to you today.